the universe. What I mean by that is, you know, what's the world like without God? You can reflect on that on a universal scale. That's what this season is supposed to be about. What is your life like without God on a very personal scale? Also worth reflecting on. The answer is not good to either one of those. And then hence the answer is Christmas when Jesus comes. And so a, a little bit of background here. Uh, Advent means arrival. And, so it's, and again, it's, it's mostly actually supposed to be about Jesus' second coming but in light of this fact of his first coming. So it causes us to kind of go into this thing of the three advents is what you really see in the church stuff. Again, if I'm not all that interested in it, I assume that you guys aren't even, you're even less interested in it, but it at least helps to have some sort of understanding. Jesus coming at Christmas is the first one that comes to mind, and that's obviously important in what we were talking about. And then Jesus' second coming on the last day as judge and ruler of the whole universe and everything causes us to focus on Jesus with us now? How, or how do we live with Jesus with us now in light of these other two things? This is the whole uh, thing coming together. Fleming Rutledge says this, Advent contains within itself a crucial balance of the now and not yet that our faith requires. So we're kind of in a weird spot. We're like, we're in a fallen world. Jesus has come. He's provided a salvation for us to redeem us, yet we're still in this world hoping for the final redemption of everything that's coming. And we're stuck kind of in this middle spot, which is exactly what Advent kind of represents in that church calendar. Karl Barth, who's like, you know, a big-time theologian of the 20th century, he said this, what other time or season can, can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? And so all of this, I'm going to pause, because, you know, you kind of work all this stuff out, and you have this whole, like, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and then you sometimes wake up the, not, the day of and you pray and then you're like maybe I should delete that and put this in instead I decided to leave most of this but I want to go back for one second because this is what came to me this morning is a way to kind of enter into this thing because another thing about these seasons it, the good part is you do them every year so you get reminded every year of these ideas you know we should be constantly reflecting on what our life is like without God and you should be constantly coming to the realization, it ain't good. You know, like that's an obvious thing. But we often can be distracted, right? So it helps to have this. But then the other problem, or, or the, the other side of that coin, I guess, is that because you're like, oh, we did this last year. Yeah, I got that. You know what I mean? You can kind of get that way about it. And so I was thinking about that, and I prayed this morning, and I really felt like the Lord brought to my mind, you know, in Genesis 3, which is like the beginning of the whole story of the Bible, God creates man, man and woman in the Garden of Eden, and it's all good. And then the serpent deceives them, and they take a bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God says not to eat of. And then suddenly, the whole creation is broken. And this, this, this brokenness is, un, is unfixable, unless God does something. And that's the whole rest of the Bible story there. But there's a point where they've done this thing. And God said, don't do this. Look, I got it all worked out for you. The whole everything. Just don't do this one thing. And we're like, got it. We're going to do that one thing. This is kind of how we are, all right? You know? And there's the moment after it happens, and then there's God coming to find them. And he says this in Genesis 3. And all, a lot of you know this. He, he's going into the garden, and he's saying to Adam, who's representing all of us there, where are you? That's what came to me this morning. And I think that's kind of where the mindset that we need to have during this season. And I, don't, I think it's, it's three words in English, at least, 
Where are you? And you can emphasize different, the different words, and they mean different, like, where are you? You know, or where are you? <laughs> or where are you? And God doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answers. That's not how God operates. You know, we need to kind of get that out. You know, he's usually asking them for our own, or even our own benefit. You know, we did that thing that broke everything. And his question is, where are you? And so that's kind of the mindset I want us to have as we go into this whole um, Advent season. Is God asking us this question, where are you? Where are you? This, uh, if you want to really nerd out on the Advent stuff, which I know that was the first on everybody's list, I do, I do recommend this book. Um, I'm going to have some book recommendations today. This book is called Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ, which that subtext is the reason I wanted to also bring this. This is full of um, messages. This is Fleming Rutledge again. She's amazing, especially on this subject, uh, you know, um, this book is great, and it really describes this situation. It's helpful because we can so often be deceived into the idea that we got it all figured out, and we're, like, really good. You know, things are going well. Based off very superficial data, you know, like, like based on what exactly? Your 401K is looking good? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's how your status in the universe, you see what I'm saying? But these are the kind of things we give our attention to. This kind of reflection helps to uh, break through that, and this book is really great. For this, here's another quote from it. Um, this, se- this season is to confront the realities of Jesus coming. Um, and here's what she says about it. Take, it takes us into the Advent darkness where there is no human hope whatsoever. And the only possibility is the impossibility of the intervention of God. I'm going to read that again because that's not always how we talk. It takes us into the Advent darkness where there is no human hope whatsoever, and the only possibility is the impossibility of the intervention of God. Now, that's kind of scary-sounding, and it's actually supposed to be, because it's the truth. Not, that's not because, okay. What I just said didn't, that's not exactly what I meant. What I mean is, it's, it sounds scary because it is scary, and you can either accept it because it is the truth, or you can just live in denial, Okay. Right? This is what I meant to say. And this, and this week's theme, according to some of the Advent traditions, because, again, since these aren't in the Bible, people have kind of made up stuff to go around. Smart people, good stuff, all these kind of things, but they don't all jive. And the version of it that we're going to kind of follow is this kind of uh, more Catholic one, I guess. That's, this theme is supposed to be hope this week, which I like this. I think this is exactly what we need to be talking about because I think we need hope, and I think this is having a week where we focus on hope is important because I think that uh, we live in a society that has lost hope, a lot of hope. Like, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but over the last couple of years, it's gotten kind of hopeless in a lot of things. And I think that we can have personal stories that go along this, and then there's just kind of the everywhere stories about it. Meanwhile, we're Christian people going, well, I've, why, why am I feeling dragged down by all this kind of stuff? You know, that doesn't seem how I'm supposed to live, you know. But, let's, but we can, so let's read through the scripture that we have for this, this day again. I want to read this Luke 21 again, which they just read. But think of it in light of all of this. Because you're finding ourselves 
awaiting Jesus' return, which sounds like a, uh, um, <laughs> well, I'll get into that. I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. Let me just read it and then we'll talk. Okay, Luke 21, 25 to 36. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish. Do you think nations are in anguish? And perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be... Listen to this. This is Jesus talking straight to us. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may, able to, you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, this is heavy stuff that we're just talking about. But if you can see what's... So what Jesus is talking about here is um, a kind of a combination of things. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking about the end of days. And he's drawing a lot of parallels here. In church tradition, people have interpreted these verses in different ways. Um, some of it historical, some of it future-oriented, and where they draw that line, people, people want to yell a whole lot about. And that's fine. We can do that on another day. The point I want to make out of this whole thing is the hope part of it. This is the scripture associated with hope, and as you read it, does that make you feel hopeful or does it make you feel scared? Something to think about. Because we live in a time that fits very much with what Jesus is talking about here. And the news flashes the last 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. This has been the kind of thing that's been in the air. And it's also not news to God. It's not news to Jesus. He's not surprised by it. And he's telling us this so that we don't have to be either. If you notice that he's saying this thing in here, be careful your hearts will be weighed down by carousing and drunkenness and anxieties of life. And, and if that's the case... Oh, wait, hold on. I lost it. Yeah. Drunkenness and anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. I think a lot of anxiety, and we'll, we're, see, we're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus in the next couple of weeks, you know, a decent amount, which is incredibly a good thing. Like, this is the na our name of our church is Maranatha. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming. The once and future coming of Jesus Christ. This is like what we're, well, this is why we exist to declare this, to to, be ex to know about it, be excited about it. But when you talk about the coming of Jesus, oftentimes everybody's like really freaked out by that. A lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that our culture has kind of been saturated with more of this left behind idea, which is not really good or biblical. We can get into the details of that later. This, you know, that you have to be worried all the time that you might be left behind and all this kind of thing. This is not what Jesus is wanting us to live like. 
the idea is that if you're distracted by the things of this world, Jesus showing up will be a surprise totally to you, and it will shock you, and it will be kind of horrible. You know, the coming of Jesus can feel like you see it in the first one, too. Jesus comes, and when he comes to a lot of people that want him, he's the healer. Even to some people, he's, you know, kind of making points for the benefit of the crowd that he's even a reluctant healer at times, you know, but he still heals. He's healing people. He's setting people free when John the Baptist's disciples come and say, are you the guy? He quotes the passages in Isaiah and stuff about, like, look what I'm doing. Like, what do you think, you know? And this is the whole, this is the whole thing that Jesus is doing. Um, but to other people, he's a threat. They don't like him. The Jewish leaders at the time seek and successfully have him executed. So this coming of Jesus is great. And terrifying. You find those words in the description. It's great if you want justice and righteousness to flow down like an ever-flowing stream in this whole bit, you know. If you want righteous judgment, if you want all evil to cease, this is great. If you want to continue the illusion that you're in charge, it's horrible. And I did choose this very muted version of this side just to make it a little more applicable. Because if we're like, well, I don't want to celebrate evil, then you can distract yourself from the truth. The fact is we're all stuck a lot of the time in here. That's why this stuff sounds scary. The helpful time is that, of this kind of time is that you can actually look and realize that without Jesus, we are lost. And I don't just mean lost like lost in a maze or something like that. I mean lost like eternally lost, like dead, like forever. You know, and so... We have the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, which is the solution to all of the world's anxieties. But we don't know how to always do that. You see what I'm saying? And this is where my other book reports are going to come in. Um, during this time, uh, I know that what you were like, what I want to do at Christmas time more than anything is read more books, especially books that Brian recommends. I'm going to give these to you just because I think they're actually incredibly helpful. But I, I, I do want to, um, well, I'll tell you what they are, and then I'm going to explain how I want you to interact with them if you choose to, okay? And I, I, I'm reluctant to share these because they're written by pastors, kind of two pastors, so you have to try a little bit to get out of what these books, what you need to get out of them, Okay? Because you may be like, I don't think about that thing you just said at all. But other pastors be like, I think about that all the time. You see what I'm saying? So this first book is called A Non-Anxious Presence. It's by a guy named Mark Sayers. And I've mentioned this book during the summer. We talked a lot about it during David because David is a the main theme that he, he enters into in this book. But I'm going to give you just a little bit of the, the recommendation. So if you say, why would I read this book, Brian? I would say, here's, here's what this would help you with, okay? And so this feels like that's something I would like help with. This is what I would recommend. And I'll still be borrowing from some of these ideas as we preach during the Advent thing. So if you don't read it, you'll get a lot of it anyway. But what this, the main premise of this book is this. Human society moves in kind of waves. You know, we get used to how things function. And then we live for a long time. And then every so, every so often something happens that thumps that and messes it up. 
to a point where it totally changes how we live with each other. And these things aren't always like, you know, uh, wars and stuff. I mean, I think there are a couple examples that are that kind of thing. But what I mainly mean is the way we live, how we understand ourselves, that where are you question, what country are you a part of, how does information get distributed from people, all that kind of stuff. A, a good example is he says that the inventing of the printing press did this. Because beforehand, if you had a book, somebody literally sat there and wrote it like this. And so if, <laughs> so if uh, it was, uh, if you had a book, it was worth having probably because somebody wrote it down, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden the guy was like, hey, I got a way we can make like a million of those. And everybody kind of freaked out for a second because how do you know if this book is legit anymore? You know, you could print a book about how to make gold out of lead and how would I know if it's true? And then Byron shows up with a cart of these books like, hey guys, you know, and then he moves on to the next town before we go, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't, you know, you see, you see what I'm saying? And it caused a, a great kind of anxiety to spread throughout society at a massive level. And then after about a generation, they adjusted to it and figured out how to, you know, share ideas again and all this kind of stuff. But there was a weird period there where the balance of power was upset. The printing press had already been invented, but people still thought in the old fashioned way. You know, we're like, I don't read books. I go to church and they read the Bible to me. Like, I don't have a Bible. Like, who has a Bible? Like, nobody has a Bible. There's no such thing as having a Bible. And all of a sudden, here, here's your Bible. And you're like, what do you think is going to happen with that? Things like the Reformation. You see what I'm saying? Like, things did change. You know, massive things changed in our history. But there was a weird period where the two things were kind of overlapping. The old way was going out. The old way of living. The old way of understanding who you are, where you are, all that kind of stuff. And then there's a new way coming in, but they haven't figured it out yet. They're coexisting, and that means everybody kind of... What happens at all these points? Another one was the fall of the Roman Empire. Another one was the laying of the transatlantic cables that allowed everybody in the world to know the same thing on the same day. I, this is sounding very boring. I, I apologize. The point is, <laughs> at those times when those things happen, everybody freaks out. Newsflash... The internet is another one of these things. Another news flash, it takes a while to figure it out. Have you noticed that when maybe some of you, especially old, when I was a kid, the news was Peter Jennings, you know, talking about things. Some of you, it was like Walter Cronkite or whatever, you know. But there was like three of the guys, and they had a job to do, and they did a job. Now, Kevin and I could sit in this little room back here and broadcast on YouTube a news channel it could be completely made up. And another newsflash, guys. They're doing it. Because guess what? They make money. And so the point is, we haven't figured out how to live with this thing yet. And it's causing everybody to freak out. So as Christian people, do you think our best solution is to freak out along with them? No. So if you go, everything that you're saying I want to know a little more about, that's in this book. I'll give you just a couple. He calls those overlapping periods gray zones because they're in between two phases of human history, okay? So here's like the takeaways from one of the chapters. We have entered into a new era. We, we have not entered into a new era. Instead, we've entered into a phase between called a gray zone. Gray zones exist in the overlap of two eras. They contain the influence of both the passing and the forming era, and this makes gray zones confusing and contradictory. 
Like if you're seeing a lot of people doing things online, you go, I can't fathom how any human being would ever do anything like that. This is why. It's a lot of why of what's going on. Gray, the gray zone will be the context in which you live and are a Christian person. He says lead in this because, again, I said it's for pastors. We must understand it and learn to flourish within it, okay? Here's another. I'm going to give you a couple more takeaways. I hope this isn't too boring. I feel like LeVar Burton now. Um, <laughs> uh, the structure of our contemporary world creates an anxious social atmosphere which paralyzes everybody. Christians paralyzes us. Does anybody feel that besides me? Raise your hand. I want to see if anybody feels this. Okay. Christians can become mired in the sticky anxiety infected by the broader cultural mood of the day. This is true. When viewed through kingdom lenses, comfortable, prosperous, and stable times do not always equate to good soil. Comfort can insulate us from the renewal. His whole point is this. Everybody's going to tell you, and even a lot of Christian leaders are going to tell you, right now is a good time for you to freak out. And what he's saying, and I believe, and I believe the whole time, is this is when revivals happen. Because we finally get the memo, we don't know what we're doing, and we're not in charge. God is. And we finally actually start to lean into trusting him. Hence this whole, like, what we're doing in Advent. It's really good. The hope is that we will stop believing the lie, that we have it all figured out, and that we're totally comfortable and everything, and actually start trusting him. This is a good book for that. Another one... Now, more book report. This book is, called, is by John Mark Comer, and it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, okay? And now here's what he wrote this book for. Now, he, he had kind of a, not a nervous breakdown, but he was just like, I'm living a very good, these guys are both pastors, all right? So they, there's an assumed, like, you want to live like a Christian person, all right? These books aren't going to be like, I'm not sure about this Christian thing, so maybe this will convince me. This isn't going to do it. They're assuming you're already like, I'm trying to do it, but it's hard and it's not working. How can I do better? That's what they're writing about, okay? So, but he was like, I'm living a really great Christian life, and like everything you could possibly measure my life by is like great. And I'm kind of freaking out, and I couldn't, and he couldn't figure out why. And so he realized that his whole life, personal life, was totally infected by the stress of hurry. That's the term he kind of landed on. But he talked about this. These are the things he noted in himself, which you may note in yourself. Irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, workaholism or nonstop activity of some kind, distraction or something, emotional numbness, out-of-order priorities, lack of care for your body, escapist behaviors, and slippage of spiritual disciplines, and then isolation. And he was like, this is not the Christian life that Jesus modeled at all or ever seemed to call anybody to. It's not like, yeah, live like that now because in the end when Jesus comes back, everything will be cool. He's like, that's not how it's supposed to work. And he's not talking at all about avoiding suffering. You know, Jesus promises in this world there will be tribulation, hence what, you know, the second, all this stuff. But he's saying that this, this way I'm living seems to be because of the society I'm finding myself in, not because of the way Jesus is telling me to live, right? And then the book, he gives you the diagnosis of it, and then he gives you some very practical things to do to help make those changes in your life. And I will tell you right now, you will not like almost all of them. 
But I will also tell you, I think he's right about all of them, or just about all of them. But the main thing I want to say about both these books is you need to employ a skill when interacting with them. And I think this is a good skill for most Christian books, most times you pray. We talk about eating the meat, spitting out the bones, this kind of thing, or weighing and testing would be a good biblical thing. I've invented a word since I have a, a, a track record here of being able to spell the word principle really well. I've invented a word, principalization, is what I want you to do. That was an inside joke for those that were here a couple weeks ago. And I will actually say, this is actually a perfect example, because John Francis reached out to me, and I will show you what I mean by principalization. What I mean by it is, take the idea and use the idea. Don't get hung up on the lentil soup or whatever. You follow what I mean? So in this book, I shared a couple weeks ago about that whole happiness, more money equals more happiness thing, and that's not true, right? And I said, if you remember, that there's a statistic that they studied it, and that if you have enough money to meet your needs, that's the point at which more money and happiness doesn't correlate anymore. And actually, you reach a point where more money makes you less happy. But we still all live in the world where we believe that more money would just make us more happy, you know? And they said that that number, they know what it is. It's $75,000. $75,000 annually covers your living expenses to the point that more money doesn't make you happier anymore. And John Francis said to me, he goes, yeah, I, I think that's right. What you just said is right. He goes, but John Francis is a big Dave Ramsey guy. He's like, I don't think that's the right number. I think that's like from a couple of years ago. And I was like, maybe you're right. I, I just read it out of the book, right? Yeah. And John was right. <laughs> it's actually like 100 now. That's the point where no longer, you know, that's, so that just shows about inflation and everything. The point is, the point of this, the statement is still true. You see what I'm saying? There is a point where all your needs are met financially, and it, happiness isn't correlated with money anymore. And we need to drop the illusion that it is. And what I mean by dropping by it is stopping living like it is, and stopping, stop living with this background belief that that's true, you know, and making decisions like it's true, and saying things to each other like it's true, because it isn't true. But you're going to find things like that in this book, because how many of you are a very successful pastor who's 30 years old in Portland, Oregon. Zero. <laughs> you see what I mean? So we need to be able to principalize the things he's talking about in here and apply them to our own lives. But I think it's a way out of this crazy thing that we're finding ourselves in and that we can live, as in the Mark Sayers book says, as Christian people being non-anxious presence, that when everybody else is freaking out about inflation, when everyone else is freaking out about elections, and when everyone else is freaking out about anything... We aren't. Not because it's not important. Some are, some aren't. Depends on the day and what we're talking about. Not because God doesn't care about them. He does. But because, as you can even see in this scripture that we were just reading, that these kind of things is what happens in a fallen world. And when a fallen world is left to its ends, horrible things happen. And we see that all over the world. There are wars in the continent of Africa that have been going on for quite a while. And the most horrible, if you look into these things, it's like gut-wrenchingly horrible what people are doing to each other. And when you find out like why, it's like it's not even for a whole lot. Human beings, including all of us, are capable of really horrible things, except for what God can do in us. And we live in a world completely infatuated with distraction to the, that, that we're cut off from the source. Not by, you know, the direct, like, demon possession work of the enemy, 
but literally just by distraction. One of the other statistics that he has in this book um, is that an average iPhone user or phone user or whatever touches their phone. How many times do you think a person touches their phone in a day? Well, did you just guess really big just so that mine sounds small? A <laughs> 100,000? I mean, like, oh, well, whatever. The point is, is <laughs> I didn't mean to sound that way. Good guess. It's 2,617, <laughs> which is a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot after 100,000, but 2,617, which that's like adults. Kids is more. And, each, and we're usually on our phone. The average is two and a half hours a day. And this is what I mean by this distraction. Um, when we were reflecting on the, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, you know, how does the way we're living show that we know anything about that? Or that we've, you know, like, how has that changed our lives at all? You know, we're just going along with the flow. Are we going to be anxious? Like, literally, it says in this, this Luke here, be careful your hearts will be weighed down by the carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. He's saying, be careful about that. Be careful about it, because it happens. And he's like, instead, why don't you notice when the trees are changing? You see what I'm saying? And he's like, and when trees change, he, he's like, this is all happening. Like, he's got it under control. When Jesus is coming back, this is great news, because evil is defeated. You see what I'm saying? It should not be terrifying, except for if you want to keep pretending like you can run the place. Because you'll find out pretty quick you don't. Listen to this. Isaiah 11, this is the other passage. A shoot will, so you have the Hebrew people who God had. So Adam, where are you? And he makes a promise right after that. He's like, you know what? Serpent, he's going to crush your head. <laughs> He goes, you'll bite him, but he's going to crush you. And it starts this whole story, which we looked at, Abraham, and it goes all the way through Moses, everything, all the way up to David, through David, all the way to Jesus being born in this redemption plan that God has for all of creation and is look, looking forward to Jesus returning ultimately to redeem all things. But there's the, the, the Bible ends, as Kevin taught in our class last week, two weeks ago, the book of Malachi there is, there's this kind of gap, this intertestament period of 450 years, I think, or whatever it was, you know, in that range where people are waiting. They're watching and waiting for the Messiah to come. And if you pay attention in the story, when the wise men come, and they're like, hey, Herod, who's a bad guy, you know, in the story, we've come to see the king of the Jews. And he's like, I thought that was me, you know. And, you know, then they're like, Where's he supposed to be born? And he's like, oh, this sounds like a big deal. And he asks the, the you know, the scribes and Pharisees again. He's like, hey, where's, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they're like, yeah, Bethlehem. You know, it wasn't like a s total surprise. You see what I'm saying? Like they actually knew the answer. Now, did they go? No. And there were other people. This is another thing that you do need to know. And you can see it in the Gospels. How often does everybody understand that Jesus is the Messiah from the very beginning? Pretty rare. Most people are like figuring it out. Peter's the best example because we have that like, you know, they, they leave that in there on purpose. But then there's other people like you saw in John when Jesus is like healing people and stuff. And <laughs> the Pharisees are like, aren't we right in saying that you are possessed by the devil? 
And you're like, no, you're not right about that, actually. And so it's, it's, just, it's what Jesus is doing isn't always super obvious. And there were other people at that time. You know, we have these prophecies. We know a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming, and we know he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and we know other things about him. We have it written down. And other people would show up and go, I think it's me. And they go, maybe it is. And then he would die. And they go, I guess not. You know, this happened. There was other ones. You can look it up. Other people that claimed they were the Messiah. There's been people that have claimed it after Jesus came. This is just facts, okay? The, the, the surprising thing wasn't, that Jesus claimed it, it was that he was right. And that's another longer story. But you, what I want us to enter into is that mindset of the knowing that he's coming, but seeing no signs anymore. Like, we don't have any, like, they're stuck in what we call this intertestament period. We're, we're, it's just kind of quiet there. There are things happening. But here's this Isaiah again. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Remember we studied David this last summer? From his roots... A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now listen to this. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he, he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. That is Jesus. And that is who they're talking about. And that is who they are, they are waiting on. But they're, they're waiting for God to do something. And this is what I want us to enter into. We'd had a subtext originally for this whole episode, thing, which was like, you know, revival, Psalm 23, da 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 and the coming of the Good Shepherd and everything like that. I want you to think about your life in light of these things and look at the most impossible things that don't change unless God does something. You see what I'm saying? Because there's some things in our lives that are like, I need to repent and stop doing X bad thing. You know, this is, this is the, or I need to stop being so distracted. These are the changes as well. We'll talk about that. But then there's also, if God doesn't do something, we're done here. This is the big story of the Advent, and it's the small story in our own lives here. But oftentimes we try to back off that kind of stuff because it seems scary. What if he doesn't? See what I'm saying? And that's something God is inviting us into because the first thing we need is just hope. That's why this is the week. And the hope is this, that change can happen. We have to have hope that God will and can do something, just like the Jewish people had before Jesus was born. Because if you're not watching and waiting, you can miss it. Not the second coming. You ain't going to miss that one. But the, the coming that, you know, that he's with you the whole time. This is the stuff we're talking about now, you know. And also kind of a realization that change is change. And that sounds kind of dumb, but what I mean by that is <laughs> Jesus offers this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Pretty good. 
weary and burdened? Yes. He will give you rest. Awesome. Next sentence. Take my yoke upon you and come learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You're like, I just said I was weary and burdened, and now you want to. Now, the yoke, that was the thing, like, you, you've seen it. It's like wooden. I should have had a photo. Wooden, and you put two oxen in it, and they pull something. Okay? This is, so it's like, Jesus is like, hey, are you really overworked and really tired? And you're like, yes. And he's like, all right, come with me. I'm going to give you a new laptop, and we're going to sit down and work together. It's like, what are you talking? I just told you I've done too much or whatever, you know. Get a shovel. Let's go. And he's like, and you're, you're like, how is your solution to me being weary and heavy laden more work? You see? That's kind of weird, isn't it? But what he's inviting us into is we talk about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we love the truth. We love the life. Well, we sometimes don't love the truth. It depends on can be confronting. <laughs> we love the life part. Like, that's great. The truth part, most of the time. But we don't talk too much about Jesus the way. And the, what, do I, what I'm meaning by that is that some changes come quickly just because God does it. And we'll talk some testimonies in a couple weeks. And then some happen, like, they're happening over time, but then they break through suddenly. You know, almost like you see Jesus talk about lots of farmer imagery or something like that, or even like the leaves coming out, you know, it's like it's been in there, but then all of a sudden, it, you know, or a flower is opening or something like that, you know, God does things like that. And then there's other things that develop slowly over time. We often call these things spiritual disciplines and stuff like that. And this is a lot of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about his yoke. He's not just saying that if you pray a sinner's prayer, then magically everything in your life will be completely different and nothing will ever bother you again. Does Jesus ever say anything like that? Now, we don't have to raise hands, but how often do we kind of act like he did? You know, like, hey, wait a minute. I thought if I, you know, I, I confess Jesus with my mouth, and okay, great, now I'm saved, and so my life is great, and nothing will ever bother me again. And then we get really upset when it does, and then he's like, where are you? Like, where, where did you get this idea from? It's, again, it's this idea from the culture. What Jesus is offering us here is to partner with him in a way of living that isn't this surrounded thing. Now, it will often run against the grain, hence how Jesus promised. Now, again, if you're like, where are you getting all this from? Go back and read that John 15 through 17 section that we read where Jesus is saying this stuff to his disciples of like, guys, I'm not praying that, that you would go away. I'm just praying that you'll be kept from the evil one in this evil place. I'm sending you out. You guys are the light of the world. Like, I'm sending you. You know, here's another interesting one, because we're so lured into um, quick fixes. That was, I think, what I was trying to say about all that. You know, some things happen quickly. God just heals a guy. Some things happen over time. Some things develop over time. And some things just take a long time. They're just a long obedience in the same direction as that Eugene Peterson phrase. And you see this Christ forming in your lives, discipleship. You watch again, the story of Peter changes over time till be, he becomes the rock upon which the church and all this kind of stuff. And so we are in that sort of process too. And so we can't be lured by our uh, kind of this, I put here, can't be lured into quick fix approach that can be bought on sale. <laughs> I think that's what we want. We want a faith in Jesus that isn't total, 
and it is impossibly, it doesn't exist. It's either all or nothing, and that's the end of it. I'm going to read this one last thing, because um, I think I've made the point I need to make. Um, I want us to be focusing on, come on up, Kayla, Justin, not just spirituality as it relates to our church behavior or something like that. I want us to kind of break a lot of this stuff down during this season and take our time with it. I want to focus on something like what I call the spirituality of the always, which to me should be sort of obvious from the Bible. What I mean is Jesus, the hope that Jesus is offering is ever-present to everyone all the time. And his rule and reign is ever-present to everyone all the time. It's usually us that are hiding from him, just like Adam in the garden. And we like to come out every once in a while, maybe when it's in a safe place, like church, and, you know, act like we're living a certain way, but we're really not. It's a good time to invite ourselves and go, like, what's the end of this? You know, is this how I want to live for the rest of my life? Is this the kind of thing I really want to keep pretending like it really matters? All these things in the world that the world is telling me that it matters, that this person got elected or that that person got elected or that this thing is happening or that, you know, my comforts might be upset slightly even though Jesus promises that they will. You know, is it, do I want to live my whole life really worried about all this stuff or do I want to live the kind of life that Jesus lived? And will it be costly? Guaranteed, absolutely, 100%. But is it the way the truth and the life yes and is that where jesus is yes and it will affect the always that's why i put this spirituality of always it's not just when you come to church on sunday like this almost is like percentage wise very little of your time like the amount of time you spent here on a sunday won't equal the amount of time you spend on your phone today according to that statistic which is probably true like, well, I only spent an hour and 45. Okay, whatever. But like, again, principalization. Like, what I'm saying is the distraction. And, then, and like, we're not going to get to the end and go, that was great. I'm so glad all that time I spent on my phone, you know? And our, our whole world is steered by these things that are in and of themselves evil. But we know the hope of glory. I'm going to read this. Isaiah 55, 1, 2, 3. This is, again, this is messianic stuff here. And think about how this would weigh against our culture. Because that's really what, what, what we're doing here. And it's a little hard to get into. Some of these books I was meaning, and you're like, I don't think about these kind of things that often. Um, I'll help you. But the thing is, the way our culture functions isn't good. We know that. And if we sit down and talk about it, we know. We know that the social medias and the media companies are designed to steal our attention and designed in some ways to keep us outraged and designed for their benefit, not for ours, yet we can't seem to resist them. And the enemy is using that to make us hate each other and he's using it to make us fearful of things that we have no business of being afraid of at all. And it ends up controlling the way we behave, the way we treat each other, the people we're willing to talk to, all that kind of stuff. It ends up running the show. I'm saying it's enough of that. We know the hope of glory. We don't have to live this way anymore. And I see in this verse here, Jesus is saying something that just flies in the face of our society. Come all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Now listen to this. You have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. 
and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. So stand with me. I'm going to close. During this season, we are going to be praying for revival. We are going to be seeking awakening in our lives. We are going to be talking about Jesus coming then, Jesus coming now, and Jesus coming in the future. And seeking to make changes in our lives that reflect that on the day-to-day basis. And not just when we come here and put on a smiling face at church. That we understand the importance of Jesus and how we watch on TV. And not in a religious way, but in a way that gives him the glory that he deserves. But we need to understand him as a good shepherd. And in so doing, the main theme that we're going to close every service with is by reading together Psalm 23. And this is the famous passage, the Lord is my shepherd. And, the whole, and I put in the King James Version like I did um, for the, uh, because I think it just reads good. And many of us who learned it with their grandmothers learned this one anyway. Um, and most of the language you understand. But this is where we need to be living. Because no matter how anxious our world gets, in the Bible, he promises it's going to get anxiouser. So he tells us not to be. And we need to get used to that. We are to be the non-anxious people in this time. Not hurried, just like Jesus was. Say this with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, let these words be true to each and every one of us here, that we may live as people that are following you as our good shepherd, and not as people that are tossed here and there by all this stuff. And Lord, let us lay down the things that are so easily entangle us and run a race of, with perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to sing this song. If you need to come spend some time praying and sorting some things out with God, please do. And then we'll go home. You, oh Lord, I lift my soul. And you, oh God, trust do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me my hope is in you show
To a thematic time, and you need to really reflect on what your life, in the grandest sense, would be like without Jesus, and then start to apply that in all the small ways because there's plenty of ways we're living that don't involve Him. And I think He's giving us an opportunity to see that and make changes and to seek his movement in our lives to do the kind of things that only he can do and actually seek that. And when that happens, there's an explosion, which a lot of times they call revival or awakening, which I would long to see in my heart and in everyone here. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and lift up his countenance towards you, bring you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you all next week.